Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard Leduc. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we're going to answer a question that we received from an email, but so we'll start off with uh, the mailbag this week. It is sponsored by Sergio uh, Pianado Jimenez. The <laughs> Wow. Wow. Well, he's the chief information officer for uh, Sociedad uh, Estatal de Correos uh, y Telegrafos. I'm fairly confident. Your, your son listening right now is... Well, he's, he's not listening right now, but uh, th- that's a... So that's the state-owned uh, company responsible for providing postal service in Spain. And due to a bilateral agreement, they also cover uh, Andorra. Ah, so, yes. So he is in always a, trying to get that extra Andorra dollar. That's true. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so we're branching out. Uh, uh, that's a tip of the cap to my son in Barcelona, uh, Spain, on his mission. So um, there you go, Elder Leduc. You'll hear this in two years. Um, <laughs> so or the, if he's like the other missionary we had listening yeah, yeah, in a couple true. weeks. <laughs> that's right. That was probably one of my favorite emails ever was, hey, I was rounding up a bunch of illegally downloaded materials, found yours, and then I listened to all of it. Like, okay, I mean, it's good to have you as a fan, but also I'm pretty sure you weren't supposed to. <laughs> well, so this first email comes to us. Um, subject, Bill I am. And the message, I am a listener named Bill. Uh, and that comes to us from Bill. And, and that's the only thing in the message. If you recall multiple podcasts ago, I was using an analogy in which I was talking about what happens if Bill, I, I, just a fictional Bill, were to become, I believe, an adulterer is what I said. I or an apostate. That's, that's correct. Something like that. An adulterer, an apostate, I don't know. And and then we, then we hypothesized, well, wait a minute. What if there's actually a listener named Bill? You know, what's he going to think? And, and we assumed that we didn't have a listener named Bill. Well, it's easy to assume you don't have a listener named Bill. When you have like six <laughs> listeners, what are the odds one of them is named Bill? Well, here we go. And Bill I am. So th- thank you, Bill. And so Bill just sent us a very brief, very terse email letting us know Well, that yeah. he's named Bill. I mean, he didn't. He's, he's busy committing adultery. Well, no, no, he's not. That was the whole fear oh, that see. we had. That's right. So here's another one. Garrett and Richard, I hope you still uh, check this email because it's not through your website, but I needed to be able to send a picture. My question is, when were you going to tell us that you guys are in a band? Occasionally, as I listen to your podcast on my commute, I look at the screen of my car and see three emo-ish band members as your photo for the podcast. Have you been dropping Easter eggs, hoping someone would catch on and ask you when your Christian rock band album would be dropping? I will take one for the team. When is it going to be released? Give the public what they want and need. I've attached a photo evidence below. And it is, um, the picture is absolutely hilarious. We'll try and figure out uh, how to put it on the on the website, but, um, but we they don't really know, did nail yeah, it. Yeah, we don't know what's going on there because uh, she listens to it on Apple Podcasts and everyone else who does as well doesn't have that picture come up. So I don't know what's going, I think it's... It might just be your device. Well, so yeah, so I, I emailed her back and I said, you're going to love track four, Joseph and the Gold Bible. Um, it's going to be coming out. It's going to be coming out for, it's got a Christmas album, Look, obviously. The, East, the Easter eggs are all around you, right? I mean, what are the tracks to our Christian song? Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Rice, tariffs, you and me. I mean, uh, that, what about townships, townships everywhere? Uh, not a drop to drink. Yeah, not a drop to drink. I mean- there, there are so many. I mean, one of them's called Rachel's mom. I mean, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Rachel's mom. She's got it going on. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, she, uh, she, <laughs> I'm sure she appreciates that kind of a shout out. So, uh, so first of all, uh, she she responded back that she she saw it on on Apple Podcasts. She she was sad that she wasn't going to be able to join us um, on the tour because she is with with child. So Mazel Tov on the uh, 
on the baby and hope you're able to join us in in 2024. Um, Although if you're if your children are anything ha- like if our you're just children, just having a baby, then my guess is you'll be able to join us in in 2044. <laughs> That's probably a better. Yeah, and it's possible she's a better parent than than we are. It's not even. It, <laughs> It's well, definitely remember it well sometimes I say things, you know, is it possible, is it probable? In some cases it's absolute. In some cases I don't know her at all, but just with how pithy her email was, she's a better, she's parent. A better parent than we are. Um and so the, the the last email here comes to us uh from a person named Vicky, and this will be kind of the source of the of the content of this and potentially uh, you know, we'll see if th- I will say in the in the prep for this, uh, Garrett got very agitated several times, and usually what that means is five parter. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I'm really gonna I'm gonna do my best. To, no, it, I was, need to, it was I need to restrain. Uh, we have some people who email, and they're all they when they email, they're excited about it. They're like, I like it when Garrett gets angry, <laughs> but I don't like it when Garrett gets angry, and so I, I try it's to. Like a, yeah. It, it really is. I, I maybe I picked the wrong profession because I get yeah history, yeah like teaching. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. No, yeah, I just get. Pick. I get. I feel passionate about some things, and at times I, I forget myself and my place. So um, it's a very well written email, and, and and like many emails that we receive, it, it actually comes with a. with a fair amount of of heartache and and sorrow, and I will say that. Uh, First of all, the emails that we receive are, are they're so kind and they're just, they're so nice. But but many of the listeners of the podcast, either themselves or more likely family members, are struggling with aspects of church doctrine or history, specifically history. That um, and the most frustrating thing is based on things that just simply aren't aren't true, right. aren't the case. Well, and 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 that's part of the where the things where the I think the anger comes from. Look. Any organization, any any group that is you know two hundred years old, is going to have parts of their history that are more difficult to handle than others. I mean, uh, the Mountain Meadows massacre is not anyone's favorite topic to talk about, where where members of our church did perpetrate a horrible atrocity. Um, but the frustrating thing comes when. The arguments that people are making, they 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 often make them in terms of, here's the real truth, or here's the real history. And I think that's what, you know, if we're trying to figure out what my trigger is, we <laughs> just it. we just found it. I mean, and 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 honestly, that's that's where you'll notice that it really bothers me. I understand that most people don't believe Joseph Smith was a prophet. Of course, most people don't believe that. Most people don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, actually, right? So, so the idea that most people don't believe, of course they don't. It, it, it requires you to believe in miracles. I, I get it. I get that. So when someone says, I just don't believe, I, 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 I take that very well. The problem is when someone attempts to claim a historical fact as the reason why they know the church isn't true. If you say, you know, I just believe that the Presbyterian church is true. That's, you know what? Great. That is a good, it's a good belief to have. It's a wonderful church with wonderful beliefs that have, that have helped many people over the course of centuries. But if you say, I know the church is false because this person said this in, in 1840, and that proves that it's false. Well, now you're not making a faith argument anymore. You're making a historical argument. And when you're making a historical argument, you then are required to follow the rules of history, meaning not every source is created the same. Not every source means the same thing as it might sound. Sources have to be taken in context. Sources have to be weighed against the other factors surrounding that source. If you say, I believe in congregationalism because I prayed and God uh, gave me a feeling in my soul that congregationalism is the right denomination, well, that is a very defensible position to take. If you say, well, I know that 
uh, Joseph Smith's a false prophet because he tried to have the governor of Missouri killed. Well, now you're making a factual, you're making a statement of something, it's not a factual statement, but you're making a, a statement claiming a historical fact or non-fact in this case is why you believe. And and so that's, I think, what, where we really get, you know, kind of get hung up. Now, I, I should mention, I realize we have a much smaller listener base after the last couple of weeks because we finally you finally talked yeah, we finally talked about plural marriage and I think the anticipation was so much people are going to be so disappointed by those episodes that they're like why am I even waiting for season 38 if, if I know one thing they're going to be disappointed by what we uh, what we put out. Yeah, yeah. They, no they, matter what the topic. It, it, yeah, the, the topic is is, is it doesn't really matter. So, so anyway, that, just that that is probably the trigger there. Just as well, the yeah, no. Yeah. So you go from faith to history, and to paraphrase uh, the golfing documentary, Happy Gilmore. Well, now you're in my world, Grandma. Yeah, you're in my world, Grandma. So yeah. so here's the uh, the email from from Vicky. Um, <clears throat> I first heard Dr. Dirk Mott on Follow Him last year. I heard he had a new podcast last year, but didn't really start listening till this month. I've been very busy listening to this Standard of Truth podcast, and I'm currently on episode 21. Well, first of all, Vicky, it's, I mean, it's only going to get downhill from there. But I'm so glad you're doing this podcast and hoping I'm not too late to ask these questions. Um, she talks about, uh, and I go ahead and redact it here. She talks about members of her family struggling with certain aspects of things that she's, that they've heard, uh, online, uh, or that they've seen online or heard online in, uh, or watched on, on YouTube video. She specifically mentions a YouTube video, uh, from, um, uh, a woman named, uh, Kath, uh, Kathleen Melanakis. Um, I haven't listened to it yet, but could you give me a rebuttal to this woman who says she looked at court documents to write her book? Um, uh, Vicky, and so actually, I have uh, a relatively uh, long-standing tradition where, so Garrett's birthday is is coming up, and for Garrett's birthday uh, every year, I buy him books that he hates. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's as only a, a true friend. What would you like for your birthday? Not that. Here it is. Yeah. So, so this year for his birthday, I got him by Kathleen Kimball Melanakis. Oh, Kimball. Oh, mm-hmm. boy. Um, Secret Combinations, Evidence of Early Mormon Counterfeiting, uh, 1800 to 1847. And so, so there you go. Happy you birthday, Garrett. the book. Happy and, birthday. Uh, you know, nice uh, ribbon on that. All right. <laughs> so theater of the mind. Uh, no, I, yeah. I literally did. Hand it to him. So, you really did. So, but, uh, so. Um, I, I, I wrote back to Vicky and let her know that, uh, that I purchased this book for Garrett and, uh, we went through it as well as the YouTube videos and wanted to, to talk about Kathleen's, the argument, some of the arguments that she's making and some of, it allows, uh, larger job jumping off points with some of the tactics that she uses in the book. Yeah. Um, so I think first and foremost, when you confront uh, any book or any, I mean, in this case, any internet, uh, 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 you know, audio, I mean, like this one, like you're listening to now, um, or, or any meme that, you know, we covered that in, a, in the past couple of, of podcasts. One of the most important things to do first is to figure out the credibility of the person presenting what it is that they're saying. Now, that doesn't, that's not a, 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 a personal attack on a person, right? I'm not saying that someone, you know, well, let's check their, let's check their, their morality and make sure that they're a good person. But if someone is claiming to have a historical expertise about a certain thing, how do we know whether or not they have that expertise? I know we've talked about this multiple times on the podcast, but I figure since we've got a whole new audience, since we started talking about polygamy, even though this one's not about that, although we might talk about it at some point, um, it, th- there are rules to to the, the practice of history. There just are. Now, always the people who didn't follow those rules are the ones saying, yeah, those rules don't matter at all. 
It's, it's a very interesting thing. You rarely find medical doctors saying it doesn't matter whether or not someone has a medical license or not. You, you won't find that, right? Unless, you know, I guess if he just lost his medical license through malpractice, then I guess maybe he would. I, it's still fine. It doesn't matter whether or not you have it. But the, the point is, and, and we made that before, that just knowing about a thing doesn't make you an expert. And sometimes people, look, history's fun. Why, why do you think I became a historian? You're, I know that you're thinking right now, it's it's not <laughs> fun. It's not. But have you heard Richard's dissertation topic in oh my business? Gosh, it's so I, much worse. It is so much worse. <laughs> History is more. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's so true. No, I am. No, I, you know, so, you know, it's just as a quick aside. So I, I had a I had a conversation today with a person that uh, that's an adjunct professor at the University of Utah, and. Um, I, uh, they have interest in going and getting their PhD. And I said, oh my gosh, don't do it. It's so terrible. <laughs> and then, and then I said, let me, and they asked what my dissertation was. And I started talking and they asked me, by the way, right. they asked me and yeah. I started talking about it. Her eyes glazed over. She immediately regretted it. And I saw the look on her right. eyes and I said, okay, and I'm so, so, you, I'm so you like sorry. stopped after the I'm, first paragraph. I'm so sorry. Your, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So and, boring. And, and, and that's the the reality <laughs> of, of the situation is that. That history is is in some for some people at least it's fun, it it it's cool to tell stories it's cool to understand how things happened in our past, and so look there are a lot of enthusiasts there are a lot of people who love history, but it's kind of like, uh you know someone who goes to a lot of jazz games, and and at one point starts to feel like not only is the team not doing good enough? But if they were on the court, they would help the team most. Now, the last time they played basketball was in a city rec league when they were 25 and they blew out their Achilles. But but they that you know they're so passionate about it that they start to think that that passion equals expertise. This happens all the time. I've said before with coaching, right? I mean, uh, you know, we we watch a we watch a, our favorite you know college football game like Richard watching Clemson over there, um, and uh, we 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 second guess a play call and we we definitively say things like, "Well, they should have done this." Everyone knows they should have done this. When when really we actually have no idea what's going on, right? Maybe it's a bad play call. Maybe the players on the field didn't run the, the play as it was called. Maybe there was a penalty that didn't get called. The, we actually have no idea. But I, I at least, let me. I'm not going to indict anyone listening. I'll indict myself. I at least, all the time, I'm like, I wouldn't have done that. I would have done this. Now, I have coached a grand total of two flag football teams. <laughs> the, the, the only, <laughs> that... Essentially, Andy Reid has called me several times, and he said, "Garrett, I I can't get Patrick Mahomes to do anything. I I desperately need your help, and you know I'm willing to step in. I mean, I'm being facetious, obviously, but the point is there is a gigantic difference between loving a thing and being enthusiastic about a thing, and being an expert in that thing." And the problem is when we're really enthusiastic or when we're driven by another motive, those lines can get very blurry. I, I've, I've used the, the, the example before and I'll just use it again um, that, you know, we, we went to, uh, I went with a, a, a good friend to a museum uh a little while ago, went to the uh, the USS Constitution Museum where Old Ironsides is, and there was a park ranger there, um, who not a park ranger but a museum docent, who wanted to tell everyone all there was to know about USS Constitution, and and he had an enormous array of facts. He he rattled them off. You know, it was built in 1794, and went down the line, and and, and he was he was telling the whole story. The people that we're with, uh, you know, the people that are listening, they all are very impressed. And it was impressive. I'm not saying it wasn't impressive. But they might come away thinking, wow, that guy is, is an amazing historian of, of, the US, of U.S. naval history. 
But the reality is that docent was really good at remembering the facts and figures that he read from another historian's book. The historian is the person who creates the material that 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 the that the park guide then memorizes to to tell the story. And I don't mean to denigrate that at all. They're different jobs. But it it's kind of like the the difference between you know uh knowing about, uh, uh, you know, someone having a headache and believing that you have the ability to prescribe narcotics to them. They aren't the same thing. And so this is one of the more frustrating things in doing religious history, because by definition, because it is religion, people are even more passionate about it. The, the only other types of history that are even close to religious history are political history, surprise, and military history, right? Those are the ones where people feel so passionate about them that they start to think that their knowledge in reading about it is the same thing as being an, a trained expert in it. And and that that's something, frankly, that, that even, even I deal with. I have to deal with the fact that I have only researched and studied, uh, you know, firsthand certain parts of American history. Now, I've read a, a lot of books about American history, but let's say like the 20th century. I am not an expert in the 20th century. Now, I've read, I don't know, many, 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 100 books on 20th century American history. So I know a lot of things about it. But I don't, I, I wasn't the one who created that research. And there's a really big difference between the two. That's why your specialty matters so much when you're doing history. Now, why, what, what is that to say? The whole conversation is to say, when someone presents you with something and says, listen to this person, they are an expert. Your very first question should be, what makes them an expert? It's not just that they know a lot of things. The very fact that that person is presenting themselves to you as an expert means they're going to know more about whatever it is than you do. The very fact that that person is presenting it to you means they feel very confident in that information. So we can't have a, a, a standard that is simply, does this person know more about that topic than I do? Because inevitably, if they're the ones presenting it to you, likely they do know more about that topic than you do. So how do we determine then whether or not someone is an expert? Well, I can tell you what the standard is in the field of history. In order to have credibility, an author or a historian needs to have two things. They need to have proper training meaning in this case, a PhD in, in, in not just history, in, in the actual field of history, you would actually have to have a PhD that specializes in the time period and in the topic that you are writing about. If I wrote a book about Roman history, when I have a 19th century American history PhD, it, if there was even anything off about that. And by the way, there would be tons of things off about it because I don't, I, I mean, again, I've read, I've read, I've read a lots of Roman history. I, I love Roman history, but I'm, I'm not in the archives reading ancient Roman documents. I haven't been trained in how to use those documents. And so it, there would be some things lacking. Well, so that would be, that would be a very big issue because I don't have the training in that era even though I have other training. So the first thing is, when, when, a, when an academic calls someone a historian, they don't mean someone who really likes history. We often use that. To, oh, yeah, you know, Bill, he's such a historian. Oh, sorry, Bill. Bill, we, Bill, I expect another email from you. <laughs> but, you know, Bill, he, you know, Bill is such a historian. And I know what we mean when we say that. We mean someone's a his, a, a, an enthusiast for history. But when an academic uses the term historian, they mean someone who has a PhD in history. And, 
and you know, I worked at an academic journal as as one of the editors of Diplomatic History. It's a it's the American Foreign Relations Journal for for American Foreign Relations History. It's it's the journal, the tier one for American Foreign Relations. And part of what I did as my job there as one of the editors was we we received submissions and we sent them out for what is called double blind peer review. What do I what does double blind mean? It means that the person I am sending the article to doesn't know who the author is. The person who the author is doesn't know who I'm sending it to, right? So there's no back channel communication where it's like, hey, I'm pretty sure they're sending you this. Please give me the green light on it, right? Well, and 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 we had a rule. Who could review articles for our journal? It wasn't good enough to have a PhD in history. It what we, you you couldn't. You had to have a PhD in history, and you had to have published, in most cases, a book from a university press on the topic that was under consideration. And then you'd be allowed to review an article on the same topic. So even if I had a P, if I had a PhD in American history, and and we got a, an article on American history, I wouldn't be qualified to review it, because a qualified reviewer for diplomatic history for this journal was someone who had already been proven an expert in the field by their publication. And so that's the second part of what um, you know something goes through peer review. Why does it go through peer review? Well, it goes through peer review because someone who's an expert in what you're trying to write about knows all of the sources. Why is it blind? It's blind because you don't want personal feeling. I mean, look, if Richard wrote an article, Richard? You know. Yeah, no, I'm going to write an article about implied referrals and their impact on and prospective you, buyer engagement, and I'm going to send it to you. And, and you sent it to me, and I knew it was his, I would be much harsher on it. <laughs> I, I bet, you know, I mean, but the reality is both of those things can happen. Maybe I know who you are as an author, and I say to myself when I get your article, well, I really don't like her, so I'm going to make sure she doesn't get published, right? Well, you know, people are still people. So, that, you know, every academic would say, no, that would never, ever, ever happen. But people are still people, which is the reason why it's double blind peer review. Nobody knows who's reviewing the article except for the journal. They do the same thing with books. They get blind reviewers to review the book. Now, that the idea behind that is if there are some major issues or inconsistencies in the book that that other author will will point them out. Now, maybe he or she just kind of mails in their job. They don't really take it seriously. And they're like, sounds good. And they rubber stamp it. That's why standard practice is you send it to at least two, if not three other people to look at. Because the hope is that not all... Now, with all that, are there still some really terrible books that are published by some historians that made it through the review process? Absolutely. But that's not the norm. A lot of things are weeded out. And I review things all the time, not just for Latter-day Saint history stuff, but for American history stuff in areas that I've published in where someone sends me an article and says, can you review this? And I don't know who wrote it. And I'll go through it and, and be like, well, you know, this was really, really, really good. But this part here, uh, there, that, that source, there's four other sources that say this. They need to track down what's going on with that source, you know, things like that. So the second way that you can determine whether or not something is credible or how much credit you should give to it, first of all, is the author properly trained? Do they have the, the actual academic qualifications to be an expert in what they're claiming to be an expert in? And as I said before, we do this with every other single walk of life, every other walk of life. No... No one is okay with a dentist who just says, I'm not accredited, I didn't go to dental school, but I was a hygienist for a little while and I watched a lot of these root canals. And, and, and there might be listeners that are listening to this saying, well, this is, this is a pretty ridiculous standard 
for someone who's you know who's making an argument about a particular thing but as as you're saying this we're going to point out specific examples that is claimed by the author to show if she was an expert she wouldn't have said the she thing, wouldn't have made that argument the mistake. right because well and so so uh, uh, you, you have you have the first standard is the one of education now again, someone might push back on that and say, "Well, that's you know, you, you're sitting there in your ivory tower and da 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 da." The the reality is, there's a reason why there's a process whereby people become experts, because it's not just because I opened a subreddit or because I opened a YouTube. I mean, the the fact that I have the ability to say something, as you well know, if you've been on social media ever, the fact that someone has the ability to say something doesn't actually make what they say accurate, right? And, and so we get that. We understand that in every other walk of our life. But when it's something that we're passionate about, we sometimes set the rules a little bit on the side because we're passionate about it. So so that's the first part, the education. The second part is where where was this thing published? Who vetted this before it was published? Again, you're not going to weed out all of the incorrect information that's out there. I mean, I read a biography of James Buchanan once that said that James Buchanan sent the army to Utah to punish the Mormons because of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Well, well, the Mountain Meadows Massacre happened as part of the Mormon reaction to the fact that an army was coming to Utah. So that author was... 100% wrong. And clearly it was a minor part of the biography. And so I'm guessing whoever they sent that biography to wasn't really a Latter-day Saint historian, right? So they didn't know that. So look, things do get through, but here are some really big red flags. So these are some red flags to watch for when someone is claiming to be a credible source of information. If what they are claiming as, again, not, not religiously, Religiously, it's completely different. If they're claiming something as historical fact, but it is not being published by a reputable publisher, you have to ask yourself the question of why isn't it? Secondly, when someone claims a wide-ranging, oh, no one else knows about this but me type of argument, one of the things you have to ask yourself like we talked about a couple podcasts ago, is why is this person the one saying it? If what they're saying is so obvious, if what they're saying really does stand to reason, then why aren't other PhD-trained historians saying what that person is saying? Now, that's not to say that people can't uncover new things. I had a a woman from my former ward show up at my house a, a few uh, weeks ago with a letter that was written to her grandfather by by one of the apostles. Well, that that was a pr- I I didn't know that that letter existed. I got to read through it. It was cool. So so it's not to say we're not going to learn new things, but it it's a way of determining whether or not the person's claim, especially when we're talking religious history, is often nobody knows this. Look look what I just discovered that nobody knows. Nobody knows this. Well, is it that nobody knows that? Or is it that everybody knows what you're talking about, at least every academic does, but they just don't agree with your argument? And so the standard in in history publishing is university presses. That's the standard. The standard is a university press um, that that university presses follow a standard set of rules that they follow. Again, do they publish books that get by the, 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 the reviewers? Sure. But it's not the norm. So you have to, when, when you're confronted with a book like this book, one of the first questions to ask is, what are the qualifications of the author? Second question to ask is, who published it? How reputable is that publisher? Well, we, we can talk about this. First of all, um, this, this author uh, is, is going to be referred to by the, the podcast interview that, she's, that our listener is talking about. She's introduced on that podcast as a historian, 
but she doesn't have a degree in history. And she doesn't even have a bachelor's degree in history. She, she is a nurse, a retired nurse, um, which, you know, nurses are wonderfully intelligent. I met nurses smarter than me, but not in history because that's not what they were trained in. She then got a, a master's degree in, you know, it, it, liberal arts and philosophy is, is, is what she says on her, on her bio. But, um, again, philosophy, it might sound like it's history, but it's not history. It's not. Um, and so that doesn't mean that what she presents is going to be false, but it does mean that I am going to be much more careful about the way she uses sources. Why? Because I know that she has not gone through a PhD training that taught her how to use historical sources. I know that because that she, she hasn't had that education. Now that again has, that's no commentary on anyone's intelligence level. You, you, can, you can be a brilliant person without a PhD, but a brilliant person without a PhD in history hasn't yet been trained on how to properly use historical sources. They haven't been. So one example that is cited um, in the interview and, and in the book is the importance of original sources. She talks about how she went to original sources, how original sources mm-hmm. are so important. Um, could, could, yeah. you, could you speak to... Could you speak to original sources and the problem with someone having an original source but not necessarily understanding the context of original yeah, source? Yeah, um, let me uh, first finish up on the, the 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 second point of the publisher, and then I'll go to that. Right. So, so who published this book? You know, it's a very fat book. It looks kind of formidable. It has a nice cover, actually, very good cover art. I mean, whoever did that is very good designer. Um, well, it's published by a a, a press. Uh, called lyrical pub lyrical productions. Okay, well, I, I'm not aware of the University of Lyrical Productions, right? So, so I, I I need to now be a little bit more hesitant because this is not an academic press. So, I go do a little bit more investigation, and what do I find? Well, lyrical productions is actually the name of the publication company that. Miss Mrs. Melanakos herself created. So this book is a book that was self-published by by the author themselves. Now, does that mean that everything in it is false? No. But what does it tell me immediately? That the level of vetting of the material in that book certainly did not go through double blind peer review. How do I know that it didn't? Well, because she is the publisher. So she couldn't blindly send her own book out to someone not knowing who she was sending it to because she's the one doing it. Even if she arranged with someone to privately or secretly do that, which she doesn't say that she does, that person would know who she is and that she is the author. That is the problem first and foremost. So when we talk about, you know, look, is the book fat? Yep, the book is really fat. Does the book have a lot of footnotes? Yes. Is it published by a credible a credible publisher? No, it's not. That doesn't mean that the book doesn't look good, but it means that the claims that are in it have not been vetted before it was published by actual double-blind peer-reviewed historians. Now, to the question of of footnotes, yeah, she, she's going to make a claim that, you know, I went to the original sources, I went to the original sources, I went to the original sources. There's a couple problems with that. As you go through the footnotes in the book, what you find is that almost none of the footnotes are original sources, meaning she's not citing the archive where this letter is actually residing. She didn't make a trip out to Yale and read the letter that's there. She's citing someone else's published version of that source. Now, 
that's a practice that's acceptable, but it is important to understand that when someone is claiming, I went and did original research, but then they cite to someone else's published version of what that thing is, that that's coming through a filter. I think the question Richard asked is, even if, even if they have those original sources, which in this case, frankly, I don't see a whole lot of evidence. I've went through several hundred of these footnotes. Almost every single one of them is simply citing to another published source. Even if you had all of the actual original sources that you wouldn't looked up yourself, part of the problem is you haven't been trained to know how to use that source properly. And, and, and again, if, if you haven't gone through PhD school, you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's ridiculous. All you have to do is read the letter and you know what it means. Well, there's a lot more to it than that, actually, because you would understand what is an appropriate and inappropriate use of a source. You would understand how it is you use multiple different sources with different conflicting accounts. You wouldn't know that if you aren't trained how to do it, or at the very least, you didn't have to prove to a PhD board that you actually did that, which is what you have to do to get your PhD. You have to demonstrate your ability to take a bunch of primary sources and essentially write a book, a book that's approved not by people who like you, but by people who want to crush you <laughs> and want to see you fail. Could, could you speak to maybe even the importance of, of context? So, so if you're reading... If you're reading one letter, two letter, a couple original sources, but you don't know the context of, of even the, the time frame that it's being written, how, how might that impact something, uh, maybe how you're interpreting it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can even see that even in our day, right? I mean, we have all kinds of phrases that we say that we don't mean literally at all, but we say them. So how often does someone say something like, I'm so mad I could kill somebody, right? Now, maybe you shouldn't say that. I'm not saying that you should. But how often do you hear people say things like that? What if all you had was their tweet saying, oh, man, if he didn't pick up that car, I'm going to kill him, right? Well, great-grandfather was a murderer. <laughs> that, that's the conclusion you would come to if you didn't actually know that in the 21st century, people often used hyperbolic phrases like that in their tweets without actually meaning that they were going to kill the person for not picking up their car from the mechanic. They use hyperbole in the 19th century too, but how are you going to know what that hyperbole is if you haven't gone through the necessary steps of the training to know it? So you might take something as very literal that was never taken as literal by anyone ever at the time, but you took it as, because to you, it seems literal. I mean, that's, that's an example. Um, everyone is, let me just say as, as a historian, you want to be very careful that you know, the primary sources. When I say a primary source, I mean the original source, what the source originally said. I was talking to Richard about this over a mod pizza and uh, I, I told him that, look, this is, this is the case even in the church. We talked a few podcasts ago about how the history of the church was created. Remember, we had a question that someone asked about how, oh, well, how come what's in the history of the church isn't word for word what was in uh, Joseph Smith's journal. And I told Richard that there's, a really stunning example of how you can't just rely on what someone did before you to, to make the argument that you're going to make. That a lot of the times you need to actually replicate that research yourself to make sure that whatever they're saying is accurate. So, um, in fact, I was, I was out in Sharon, Vermont, just, uh, you know, just a, a little bit ago and at the, the church's historic site there, um, one of the images that they have on the wall is a list of the children of, of Joseph and, and Emma Smith. And honestly, it's, it's, a, it's a tragic list. It's a list that brings tears to your eyes because of just how many children they lose. I mean, we've talked about it before, but 
They lose their first son. Then they have twins that are born that die immediately. Then they adopt the Murdoch twins and one of them dies. And, and then, you know, Joseph's toddler dies in 1841. Don Carlos, right after his own brother dies. I mean, it, it is, it, it is certainly an answer to the fact that the, that, that sometimes bad things happen to good people is, is certainly the case for Joseph and Emma. They, they suffer a lot. But on this list, there was a child uh, listed December 26, 1842. And that, um, that child didn't have a name and, and, you know, and said died right after birth. Now I knew about this because I'd worked on the, on the Joseph Smith papers and I knew what was going, why that was there. So I kind of want to demonstrate that to you. Why original sources matter. So knowing, first of all, how the history of the church was created matters, you know, because I just think like, oh, this has been, you know, the church vetted all this. Obviously, this is the history of the church. Well, the history of the church was created, as I talked about in those previous episodes. Uh, It was primarily, much of it was written, much of the early stuff was written in Joseph Smith's lifetime with Willard Richards uh, serving as one of the primary church historians. After Joseph is murdered, Richards continues to work on it, but he dies in 1854, and so throughout the 1850s, there are there is a historian's office that is attempting to create this, this narrative history of the church. And the way they did it was by going through Joseph's letters and by going through Joseph's journals, going you know through uh, the minutes of meetings and cobbling all that together in what sounded like a first person narrative. So the history of Joseph Smith didn't didn't read like this. Then Joseph turning 18 moved to no it doesn't it reads instead so I decided that when I was 18 I would like they 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 put Joseph in the driver's seat in a first person narrative even though um he's rarely you know writing like that. I mean you might be quoting a letter where he is. Well in Joseph's, uh, uh, in the history of the church, if you go to the, the history of the church for December 26 uh, of 1842, let me uh, just read that to you so you know what it says. And what I'm reading is the manuscript version of this. So this was the, the handwritten manuscript version of this that would eventually be published. Later would be, you know, co-edited and published in the, in the, the multi-volume history of the church. The, you know, the often people have those paperback color uh, coded copies of that, the different volumes. But the manuscript version of this reads explaining on this day, right? You can see how it's in this first person, right? You know, in the morning, uh, held court. I was afterwards uh, arrested by general uh, Wilson law and the proclamation of governor Carlin and elders, Henry G. Sherwood and William Clayton went to Carthage to obtain a writ of habeas corpus to take me before the court at Springfield. General Law gave me in custody of Dr. Richards, with whom I visited Sister Maury, who was severely afflicted. So he goes on, you know, all this is, is, is what's going on day to day. It's a very busy day. Then when you get down uh, to the end of it, he talks about how he received, uh, you know, a walking stick from Brother Maury. And then it says, on my return home, I found my wife, Emma, sick. She was delivered of a son, which did not survive its birth. Well, you know, Joseph kind of buried the lead, right? He's talking about how he got a walking stick and then, you know, just got home and found out that his, his wife not only gave birth, but that the child died. And, and so it's yet another whore. And so um, that's where that information that was on that wall in Sharon came from. It came from this, the, the history of the church. This manuscript version was then published, and it's, you know, you can go find this in your volume of the history of the church right now. But where did the information in the history of the church come from? That is the important question to ask as a historian because I can either accept what's there uncritically or I can go try to find out where it actually came from. And in this case, it comes from the entry in Joseph Smith's journal for that day. That journal is kept by Willard Richards. Now, Willard Richards is a, you know, we have so much of church history. I mean, aside from, you know, being caricatured as a <laughs> as a five-pistol holding murderer, um, what he actually is, uh, is a, is a, 
someone we owe a lot of our church history to because he spent so much time and effort collecting and producing this early church history. He served as as a scribe and a clerk for Joseph Smith and as a secretary. And so he he is the one who actually records Joseph's journal. And and as we said before, it's not entirely clear whether it's being dictated to him at times or or it's just him reflecting on what happened that day, you know, kind of keeping a track of what Joseph does as in the office of the president. But he's the one keeping the journal for for that day. And so when we go to Joseph Smith's journal, what we find is some similar things as were there in the history of the church. But when we get down to that portion that we just read about, this this tragedy of Joseph's child dying, we read this instead. Home. Sister Emma sick had another, and you can see it's C-H-I-L. And I, you know, I've I've often said that, you know, Willard Richards at times he writes quickly, he writes illegibly. There are many times I've been shouting at a page written by Willard Richards, can I buy a vowel Willard? What is that? <laughs> I see a T and that's it. What are the rest of those letters? Because he's in a hurry. And in this case, the way that he's written the second L on the word chill looks like it could be a D. And so when this was being transcribed, um, the, 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 worker in the historian's office in Utah, so many years removed from this scene, transcribed it as Sister Emma Sick had another child. Well, I think all of the women listening at the very least would argue that there is at least a slight difference between having a chill and being sick and having a baby that at least I've been told. I have also been told that. Yes, that that they're not the same thing. Well, well. so then you're thinking, well, where does the rest, I mean, because, you know, the history of the church says, you know, had it, had a child, it didn't survive its birth. Well, because remember, they're creating a narrative. So you can see this poor, this poor guy in the historian's office copying this over. And, and after it's copied over, it's Sister Emma Sick had another, you know, Sister Emma Sick had another child. Well, well, who's that child? I mean, we we know who Joseph's kids are. I don't know this one. So obviously that child must have died. And so what gets written into the history is, on my return home, I found my wife, Emma, sick. She was delivered of a son which did not survive its birth. Now, maybe the reason why they added the delivered of a son in there was that whoever's working in the historian's office, maybe they remember that Joseph did have a a male child that died, or they remember hearing about that. Maybe they're thinking back in 1828 when Joseph did have a son die at birth, or when Joseph had twins and one of them died at birth. Or maybe they were even thinking of Don Carlos, the, the toddler who dies in 1841. I don't know exactly what they were thinking when they added it, but you can tell that they added the extra information to try to make it make sense. If Joseph had a child, then I think we should know who Joseph's children are. Well, we don't know this one, so that one must not have survived. And so they wrote in there, on my return home, I found my wife, Emma, sick. She was delivered of a son, which did not survive its birth, even though the actual source says, at home, sister Emma, sick, had another chill. And then the next line is, had a consultation concerning her with the secretary. Um, the, the reason why is because, you know, Dr. Richards, right? So uh, there's, she's sick. And so Joseph asked Willard, you know, what would you do, right? Um, here's an example where there's no ill intent. Nobody is attempting to do anything to deceive anyone here, but Inertia is a really powerful thing in the field of history. Once something gets written down and published a certain way, oftentimes people very uncritically take that argument and they build the entire basis of another argument on it. We talked about this when we talked about the uh, the faux documentary of 
of, of Willard Richards and John Taylor and their murderous rage in Carthage. Part of the reason why that, that uh, the author of that film made the argument they did was because an erroneous argument had been published years earlier. And then using that erroneous argument, but without going back and retracing it to see if that argument was even accurate, that opened the door for opportunities to make other bad arguments. This is something that we actually see here in the beginning of, of, of her work and her argument. Just to summarize, one of the arguments that is, is made, this is a book about a conspiracy theory. Um, she rejects any and all aspects of the divinity of Joseph Smith's mission. And in fact, uh, tries to place him and his entire family in a wider network of people trying to counterfeit money, treasure dig for money, um, uh, an affiliation with masonry, which is pretty convoluted the way that she tries to describe it in her interviews and even more so in the book. Um, and that, that places a taint on all of, of, of Latter-day Saint history, that these people are just a bunch of conspiratorial criminals trying to get away with their crimes. In fact, she'll get to the point in her interview and in the book where she'll argue that part of the reason why Joseph introduced plural marriage was to try to keep those people on the fringes of his counterfeiting network, try to keep them solidified to him through these family marriages. Um, there are, uh, it would take me, honestly, it would take till season 38 uh, to go through every inaccurate, overstated, or false claim in the book. And, and as I go through them, it will come across to you as if I'm being very, you know, very, well, he, Come on, Garrett. I mean, that's just a small point. I'm giving you only the very briefest of small examples that demonstrate what happens when someone with an axe to grind, who is a, a, a part of and affiliated with one of the well, longer standing anti-Mormon groups uh, now, um, that what what kinds of mistakes they make. I mean, look, some of them are basic uh, mistakes. For instance, um, you know, she argues that, you know, trying to make a connection between Joseph Smith and, um, and the idea of, of, of the Native Americans being descended from the lost tribes of Israel, she makes just a historical factual statement that, you know, as early as 1652, there were, uh, you know, people started, you know, theorizing that Native Americans, you know, might have been part of the lost tribes of Israel. Well, if you remember on one of our previous podcasts, it's it's actually much earlier than that. It's actually a hundred years earlier than that that people first start saying that there's a connection between uh, Native Americans and the the lost tribes of Israel. Now that that's a very small point, and you might say, "Well, come on, Garrett, you're just you're just you're you're being a little bit overly harsh." Well, when you are making a claim that Joseph Smith did not receive any miraculous intervention, that he never had gold plates, that he never saw an angel, that he never saw God, and that I can historically prove it, well, then I guess you better get your history right. Because you're the one arguing that Joseph Smith is a liar because you can prove it through history. Well, if you're going to prove things through history, then I suggest getting the argument correct. Because when you don't, I, I don't have, look, I believe Joseph Smith's a prophet because the Holy Spirit told me that Joseph Smith's a prophet. In addition to that, I've also read all the stuff that he ever wrote and did. But I believe because of the Holy Spirit. But if you want me to accept your argument, your historical argument, well, you don't take historical arguments on faith. Historical arguments come with proof. One of the things you'll find in this book 
if if you were to you know read it um, is over and over and over and over again you will get things like it stands to reason obviously dot 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 here's here's actually a really a great clue for life if ever you're in a discussion with someone an argument with someone and they say obviously what is about to follow is something that clearly isn't obvious. It's a very funny aspect of the English language that whenever we say things like clearly, what we're about to say must not actually be that clear. Because if it was, we wouldn't have to say clearly. Now look, you're gonna you could go through and clip me up. I do it all the time because I'm also an American, right? So I, I speak with that same kind of lexicon. But but the reality is. When we say things like it stands to reason or Joseph must have or Hiram certainly would have, if you ever read that, what it means, it is the author with a giant megaphone screaming in your ear, I don't have a source for this, but I want it to be true. So I say it. Now, a very responsible scholar would say it this way. It is possible that while Hiram was going to school, he may have made connections with some of the people living in the area. But if he did, we don't have any record of those interactions. Now that's what a historian writes. What does someone write who is just trying to make an argument and claim that it's historical? Obviously, Hiram would have clearly made associations with the people that were there, and those associations would have influenced his thinking. Now, notice the difference. Not only am I just taking for granted that an association took place, I am then taking it a step further. Obviously, he had an association, and this is what he would have learned from that association. Two things for which I don't have a source. Historians, careful historians, try to only argue about the things that they can actually prove. Now, I know that was a lot of setup in this episode, um, but what I want to talk about next time as we cover the more of the meaty details of the book is... One of the arguments that is made, and it and it was just very, it was it was made again, you know, uh, online. It's and it's kind of making the rounds again, is an argument that is purported to be a new argument, but it's only a new argument if you didn't know that it existed before. Look, when you first learn about something, it's always new to you, right? When Richard tried to tell me what his dissertation topic was, it was very new to me, <laughs> and also very boring. I I mean, I, I don't. No, it's very yeah. boring. Richard's the one writing it, and he's like, this is this is just so boring. <laughs> Amazing, effective, and also... So very boring. Yeah. I mean, we could package it and sell it in a way that, that Ambien never could touch. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we should just... Maybe we should do it behind... You know what? We're going to start a premium... A, you premium know, a, a paywall where I just I read my dissertation to help people drift off How many to people struggle with... with with sleep. Oh, it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. Absolutely. And Richard could just be like, you know, just, just what's the title of your dissertation going to be? Well, I, I, it's a working well, title. Give me your prospectus. What's the title <laughs> of your prospectus? Well, it's, it's essentially the, the impact of uh, brokerage theory and networking um, with the variable of implied referrals and several moderating factors on prospective buyer engagement. I'm glad we waited till the we waited till the end of the podcast to do that because now if you drift off to sleep you'll just miss the guy telling you to share this with anyone that you want to share it with. Um, but one of the primary arguments that is made um, in in both you know some of her online interviews but also in this book is that many of the religious truth claims of the Latter-day Saints, that Latter-day Saints herald as being radical and new and great and wonderful things, are actually pilfered and purloined from a relative of Joseph Smith who lives in the nearby area. Now that is a pretty bold claim because you're claiming again 
you, you, you are making an argument that you know the origin of where Joseph Smith's truth claims come from. Now, Joseph is saying they come from God. So if you're going to make a truth claim that they come from somewhere else, you, you need to bring something to the table that's more than just, I don't really think so. And so... Um, we will, we're going to get into that in the next episode. So thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully we, we have you back for the completion of this next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.